Hey, just really glad to be jumping into this series. I was here back in June and taught on the life of Joseph and um, just have really enjoyed your series. I know Ian Nelson was here last week. I'm sure that was fun um, as he talked about the anti-hero Saul. But today I want to put forth in front of you a hero from the Old Testament by the name of Amos. Uh, he's one of the Old Testament prophets. So we're going to be looking at him, his life, and a passage from Amos chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Amos chapter 4. Um, probably not a piece of scripture that you uh, frequent in your Bible. Um, so no shade or shame going to the table of context. Find Amos in chapter 4. And when you're there, you can just say, I'm there. Some of you have Google, so you cheated. Um, but uh, Amos chapter 4 this morning. Now in chapter 1, verse 1. Amos gives us a little context and backstory about himself and the time frame in which he declared his prophecy to the nation. And he writes this, Amos 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoiash, was king of Israel. So it's the year... 760 BC, and there are two parts of Israel, as you probably remember um, for you Bible students and scholars, there was a rift in Israel, and Rehoboam took the two southern tribes, later called Judah, and then Jeroboam, the first, took the ten northern tribes, and they are called Israel. And at the time of Amos writing, there are two kings in power, one to the north, and one to the south. The king to the north is a man by the name of Jeroboam II, and the one to the south is a good king named Uzziah, and he's the king over the southern region. Now, Amos hails from the south. He's in the north, and you'll know if you've read the book of Amos that the primary audience for his prophecy is the ten northern tribes in Israel. It's directed to, toward them. Now, at the time, the ten northern tribes were experiencing outward external success. They were prosperous in a multitude of ways. Their military could not have been stronger. They had great land expansion. Uh, there was a time of taxation on other nations, and they were receiving big-time revenue from both Assyria and Egypt, to just name a few. But underneath the surface of the external prosperity was a nation in the throes of spiritual decay, a nation that was filled with pride against God and one another, greed, idolatry, gross, gross sexual immorality, oppression, and injustice. I mean, can you imagine living in a nation like that, where externally that looks prosperous, but then below the surface is lots of spiritual decay? Well, that was the situation in which Amos found himself as he was sent by God to go to the ten northern tribes. But before Amos even came on the scene, God had sought to warn his people of what was coming if they continued in the way that they were going. And so God sends all-star prophets like Elijah and then later his protege Elisha to speak to the nation, to turn away and turn back to the Lord. And yet that was to no avail. So Amos comes to speak to the people 
of coming judgment. And from what we know of the history books, approximately 40 years after Amos delivers this prophecy, judgment would come to pass. In the year 722 B.C., under the Assyrians who would come in and put fish hooks literally in the jaws of the Jewish people and haul them away off into captivity. So this is a rather heavy book with a heavy message. And I think it's not by coincidence that Amos' name, his original Hebrew name, actually means uh, load or burden because he would carry the unique burden of being called a prophet of Yahweh. I mean, could you imagine having a responsibility of like, of like having to deliver unpopular news? I mean, no one wants this guy in their town or their village or their community. And when, when he comes, he comes as an omen of God's judgment against the people that he shows up to speak over. So he comes with an, an unpopular message as a dark omen. And one of the resilient things about an Old Testament prophet speaking of your Resilient Faith series, is that they would be willing to speak the unpopular, uncomfortable words and bear the consequences. Because there would be consequences when you make people uncomfortable. When you talk out against them, there will be consequences. And so for an Old Testament prophet, there was rejection and isolation, being hunted and literally persecuted by your own kinsmen. Actually, there's a New Testament um, deacon named Stephen, who was actually the first Christian martyr in the church. And when he gives his one and only sermon, which is a phenomenal sermon preached by the deacon Stephen, he actually, before they actually, the religious leaders in Israel at that time, kill Stephen and, and stone him to death, he actually gives an indictment against ancient Israel and their treatment of the prophets in Acts 7, verse 52, saying this, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. According to the New World Encyclopedia, six of the Old Testament prophets whose prophecies end up in the canon of Scripture were actually killed in Israel. A guy named Isaiah, maybe you've heard of him, one of the major prophets, was sawn in two under the reign of the evil king Manasseh. Another prophet, Jeremiah, was stoned to death in Egypt. Ezekiel, killed in Babylon. Micah, the prophet, was killed by King Joram. Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the high priest's son, was stoned to death in the temple courtyard. And Amos, the prophet we'll be looking at this morning, was tortured, beaten with a club, and would eventually die back home in Tekoa from his injuries. So to be an Old Testament prophet... You would have some backbone. And you needed to know a couple of things. Number one, you needed to know that you had heard and been called by Yahweh to do this. No one would do this without a calling. But secondly, to be a prophet and to risk your life in the way that the prophets would is you had to believe that the preservation of your earthly life is not more important than obedience. Just marinate on that truth for just a moment. That the preservation of your earthly life is not more important than your obedience to God. I think most of us, if we love and follow Jesus, would say, yeah, that's the way I live my life. That's the way I want to live my life. But in such a comfortable nation, at such a comfortable time, it's really hard for us to know 
If we have the kind of faith with the resilience of an Old Testament prophet that would say, if God asks me to do something that costs me my life, I would do it. And I don't know if you've been following much of what's going on in the world in regards to one of the fastest growing Christian movements in the world today in the radically Islamic country of Iran. But the church is growing faster in Iran right now since the shutdown in 2020 in March. The church has exploded in Iran like we've never seen before. There's a revival breaking out in Iran. There are, according to the Christian Broadcast Network, roughly 3,000 Muslims a month are turning to Jesus Christ. And in this documentary, if you haven't seen it before, it's about this phenomenon, this, this revival going on in Iran. It's called Sheep Among Wolves, and, and it's the story of the revival going on. And one of the unidentified pastors who's helping lead this movement underground said this. Listen to this. What if I told you Islam is dead? What if I told you no one follows Islam inside Iran? Would you believe me? This is exactly what is happening inside Iran. God is moving powerfully inside of Iran. That's a reason to celebrate, right? We have brothers and sisters that we'll never see until heaven that are growing 3,000 a month over the last year and 18, eight months or however long it's been. They've been growing and growing by 3,000 every month. That's Praise God. Thank you. Um, praise God, church. If you don't know when to clap, that's the signal. Put the clap sign on. The, the director of the documentary, a man named Dalton Thomas, calls this the Iranian awakening. It owns no property, no buildings, has no central leadership, and is predominantly led by women. Now, you know, God needs very little to do much. In a country where they're not even allowed to celebrate Jesus in public, where they have no formal leadership or buildings or assets, they are growing phenomenally. We could probably learn something from what God is doing over there. But one of the women in charge of leading this movement inside of Iran said this about her life, as she puts it in jeopardy every day, to love and follow Jesus. We know that if they get us, the first thing they will do to us as a woman is rape us. And then they will beat us and ultimately they will kill us. This is the decision we have made that we want to offer our bodies as sacrifices because I have this thought when I wake up that when I leave that door, I might not come back. Now, in order to live like that, you have to believe two things, that you have heard and you are following the true God and that your obedience to God is more important than your preservation of your own life. That's basic Christianity. Amen, church? The preservation of your earthly life is not more important than you following and obeying what Jesus has asked you to do. And our brothers and sisters, right here, right now, in this time and space, are actually stepping out in radical obedience to Jesus, and it's costing them literally everything. So Amos comes on the scene just an ordinary man. He doesn't come from a royal family of prophets, priests, or kings. He's just a blue-collar guy. He actually writes about himself. You might jot this down in chapter 7, a little self-disclosure of the author. He says in chapter 7, 14 and 15, I was neither a prophet 
nor the son of a prophet. It's almost like he's saying, I don't even know what I'm doing here. But I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from the tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. In other words, he's like, I'm just a farmer and a rancher who's obeying God. And God spoke to me and says, I have a message I want to give to you, and I want you to go deliver it. And Amos is just saying, I just showed up. I just did what God said. And that's what prophets do. They hear what God is saying, and they tell God's people what God is saying. You know, we need this in the church. Amen. Nations need prophets. Churches need prophets. We need to listen to the voice of prophets and prophecy. Actually, if you do some study in the New Testament, you'll find that when Paul the Apostle talks about spiritual gifts, he actually elevates prophecy as to one of the most important spiritual gifts. He says that when we speak words of prophecy, edification, exhortation, and comfort, that that the church benefits, the church is edified. We need to listen to the voice of prophecy. But the voice of prophecy, let us not be mistaken, is not always a voice of sunshine and rainbows. It's not always an encouraging message. And, And I think one of the things that's happened over time is that we've become unable to hear hard words. As the old Puritan used to say, hard words make soft hearts. Soft words make hard hearts. Can you think of the last time you heard a rebuke? I mean, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to reprove and rebuke. That's hard words, and we're not accustomed to hearing hard words. We want the preacher and the friend and the leader and our neighbor to always speak kindly and softly to us. But there are times when you either are supposed to be able to listen to a hard word or you may even be called to give hard words. It's not constantly a a, a message of peace, peace, peace when there is no peace. Sometimes we just have to speak what God is saying. That's what prophecy is, what God is saying for the here and now. And remember, Hebrews 12 says about the hard things that the Lord disciplines, the ones that he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So this morning, from the life and prophecy of Amos, we're going to look at just one of the rebukes and warnings that he gives. And I just want to remind us all up front that although the book of Amos is calling Israel out for their many sins and idolatries and warning them of judgment to come, it does conclude with some hope. After a season of rebuke and warning, the last part of this prophecy, we won't get there today, but in chapter 9, the last half of the chapter, there's actually God saying, I want to rebuild. I want to, I want to give you hope. I want to do something new in this nation. But first, we must deal with the sin. We must deal with the idolatry. You know, I think of it like this. Sometimes in order to heal, you must cause pain. We've kind of been dealing with this at our church at Westside in kind of an unparalleled time. I mean, everything in this last year and a half has been unparalleled. It's like we've never faced this before, but within the last couple of months, we actually have had two of our pastor's wives be diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, both of these women had to go in for surgery, get a mastectomy in order to remove the tumor in order to potentially save their lives. And we could say about the surgeon that the surgeon caused pain, that the surgeon cut deeply, but we know that the, the attempt to the reason for the pain was not to harm but to heal. And there are times when the most loving thing 
that you can hear is something that cuts you. The Bible says things like faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If we become addicted to constantly hearing positive uh, 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 words and positive, positive uh, just people speaking positively over us, then we're not going to have the appetite to sometimes hear when we're off track. And sometimes we just to, need to, I just need to hear a rebuke. Brother, you're off. That's sin. That's wrong. You need to turn back to the Lord. That's idolatry. You can't have affection for that and have an affection for Jesus. You can't speak like that. You can't live like that. You need to get your priorities in order. And sometimes that's just the very thing that God needs to say to us and it, it cuts us in order to heal us. And God's love and kindness sometimes comes through these hard words. Hebrews 12 verse 11 says that no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Anybody ever try to train for something? I remember when I was training for a marathon. What, what a mistake. Those of you who run marathons, I, that was such a mistake. I did it. I finished it. But I literally was laying in the street afterwards when I was done and just thought, I told my wife, I was like, I don't know why I did this, you know. And, and then there was like some 75-year-old woman just kind of walking right past me um, while I'm laying out on the floor. But, but you know that if you've ever trained for something hard, you know that the payoff is big and good and rewarding. But no pain in the momentary is pleasant, but it's painful. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. The words that we're going to read together this morning are both sobering and confrontational. And as much as my humanness wants to apologize for these words, I'm not going to apologize for something that God says. And I'm also believing that this is actually going to be good for us. And I'm saying us, not you, us, me included. I need to hear these words. Because the intention is to heal and not to harm. The intention is to bring life and not death, to restore us to full fellowship with the Lord. And I don't know where everyone is here spiritually. I don't know if you're in full fellowship with the Lord, but I, I don't think there's any of us who actually love Jesus who would say, I would rather not hear a hard word and have the benefit be I'm in full fellowship with God. It's not going to be fun. I may not enjoy it. It may not make me feel good. I may not get the warm fuzzies out of it. But you know, come on, guys. We don't always come to church to get the warm fuzzies. Sometimes we need to come to church and say, I need to hear a word from God. And sometimes that word from God is repent. Turn away from your sin. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. But the intention is to restore us to full fellowship with the Lord. So you're in chapter 4. Are you all there now? Yeah? I gave you a long time. Long introduction. Long front porch to the sermon. Hopefully the sermon won't be as long as the porch. Um. We're in chapter 4, and look at verse 1. It starts off intensely. I mean, just hear this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness that time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. Now, I mean, he's not trying to win any popularity contest. He just called the wealthy women of Israel cows. I mean, no one who's trying to write a book or become like a national speaker starts off by saying, good morning, you rich cows who sit back in your luxury and ask for more drinks from your husband. But that's 
the words of God to these people through Amos. But then verse 6, he begins now in this rebuke. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. In other words, he says, I sent starvation. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7, I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain and the other had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. He says, I sent famine, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 9, many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. And he says, I sent crop failures. And yet, same song, next verse, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. In other words, he says, I sent wars and death, and yet again, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, and again for the fifth time, this refrain, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. God had sent Many warnings, many acts of discipline, and over and over the people ignored him. Therefore, verse 12, this is what I will do to you, Israel. Because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. So here you have this unknown sheep herder, fig farmer from Tekoa, come to the north as Yahweh's messenger to a wayward people. And five times he uses this refrain, yet you would not return to me, declares the Lord. I went after you over and over again with my acts of discipline. God sent famine and drought and failed crops and plagues. He went after them, but... Because of his love, he continued, but they would not wake up. They would not respond to the chastening hand of the Lord. They weren't getting the message. And so God says, okay, I've sent all these things, but you would not listen. And so now we're going to have a face-to-face encounter. Now, if God says that he's going to meet you, it probably means the day of your death is imminent. And he says in verse 12, so you've not listened Now prepare to meet your God. Now before we're too quick to say, man, that sounds really cruel. Listen, all of us are going to meet God one day. Right? Amen? All of us will meet God one day. We're all going to die. But at least God has given Israel a heads up. Most of us are going to meet God without much warning. Israel has been put on notice. You need to get prepared because you're about to meet God. Get ready to meet the Lord. Prepare to meet your God. Now, one of the basic questions that I think we have to ask as we look at something like this is, am I ready to meet God? 
And so I want to spend the remainder of our time together just with this question, are you ready to meet God? Because when we talk about a resilient faith, the very foundation of this faith is being ready to meet God at the moment of your death. So two associated questions that probably should come up for us as we think about preparing to meet God. Number one, why should I prepare to meet God? And number two, how should I prepare to meet God? Why should I prepare to meet God? And how should I prepare to meet God? Well, first of all, let's start with why I should prepare to meet God. Two main reasons. The brevity of life and the finality of death. In the scope of eternity, life is going to be very brief. We're going to all face death one day. Happy Sunday to you. Welcome to church. You're all going to die. The statistics on death are uncanny. Ten out of ten people die. And that said, the Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, people are destined to die once and after that face the judgment. We all have an appointment date with death. But unlike your appointment with your dentist or your doctor, you don't set the appointment, you don't know when the appointment is set, and you don't get to change the schedule. One day, my number will come up, and it will be my day. And you might be gifted to live to a ripe old age, or you might die in your youth, or you might even die tonight. This may be your final day. But either way, it's going to go by very quickly. I was reminded that this Friday I did a memorial service out at Willamette National Cemetery for a 35-year-old guy that was at our church who tragically overdosed and uh, he died young. And I was just thinking after we had done the service and was there with the family, we were walking out to the gravestone to lay down these carnations, just a line of us laying down these carnations and this mass grave of many headstones and just thinking about how brief life is. I mean, I'm 43 years old now, and here's a guy that was part of our church, part of our community. He went on trips with us. He was serving at our church, and now he's met God. James tells us in James 4, verse 14, about this thing we call tomorrow. This is what he says about your tomorrow. You don't even know what tomorrow will, what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, when, he, when James talks about life, he, he, he kind of compares it to what happens when you go to the Oregon coast, you know, especially in the summertime. Like, there might be that morning marine layer and your kids are all frustrated. Oh, man, it's all foggy and gloomy. But then by midday, the gloom burns off and it's a beautiful day on the Oregon coast sometimes, um, every once in a while. Well, James is essentially saying your life is like the morning fog that comes at the beach. It melts off by early afternoon and it's gone. Think of the infamous epitaph that was found on a tombstone in Virginia in 1823. They, someone walked by this tombstone and read these words. Remember now as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare for death and follow me. Life is brief. We don't inhabit these bodies forever. 
So prepare to meet your God. But not only the brevity of life, but what about the finality of death? At your funeral, it's too late to get ready to meet God. When your body's in a box in the dirt, it's too late to get ready to meet the Lord. You know, somebody has said it that most people in their lifetime will go to church three times when you're hatched, when you're matched, and when you're dispatched. The first time they threw water, the second time they throw rice, and the final time they throw dirt. We're, we've got to be ready to meet the Lord because at the end we will, as the Bible says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. These sobering words from Paul say it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things that have been done while in the body, whether good or bad. It makes me step back and ask the question, if we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our lives are going to be evaluated by Jesus and what we did, I have to ask myself, what am I doing with my life? How am I spending my life, which primarily exists in three orbs? My life consists of my time, my treasure, and my talents. And I don't really have as much to do with how much of time and treasure and talents I get in a lifetime. But what my stewardship is, is that while I'm here, as many years I get, that dash between the two dates of my birth date and my death date, what will I do with the time, treasure, and talent that I've been given? Will I hoard it? Will I waste it? Will I use it for myself? Or will I give it away to God and His people for the good of the kingdom purposes? We all have to look at our lives through these lenses of how are we spending what we've been given because we only have so much time, we only have so much money, and we're only so talented. It's like the words of that great poem by Mary Oliver. It's actually a poem about nature, but it applies to us as well called The Summer Day. Where she says in the last sentence, doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Prepare to meet your God. Because life is brief and death is final. That's where the decision is made. So, so if that be true, how should we prepare ourselves to meet God. For however many days I get on this earth, how should I prepare to meet God? And I would suggest four ways based on the book of Amos that we should live the kind of life that if Jesus showed up at any moment, we would be ready to go off with him in glory. Amen, church. Amen. Don't you want to live today as if it could be your last? That's the way to live, living on the edge of eternity, believing that you, you're not going to go on this way forever. And so God, help us, teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. And so four things to jot down. So if you take notes, jot these down. If you don't take notes, repent, start taking notes. Um, number one, stay centered in a community of men and women who follow Jesus in truth. Now some of you in here may already be followers of Jesus. How many of you, by show of hands, are followers of Jesus? Just, I follow Jesus. Okay. If you don't have your hand up, 
It's either because you don't like to do that in church or you're not a follower of Jesus. And you having your hand down, thank you for your honesty. But, but one of the most important things about preparing ourselves to meet the Lord, probably the, the most foundational thing, is that sometime between your birth date and your death date, you must make Jesus the Lord. Not just the Savior, but the Lord. Lord means master. And Jesus said, you can't call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I've asked you to do. And part of us living this out is living it out with the community of men and women who follow Jesus in truth. Israel was religious, they had, but they had lost touch with Yahweh. And they had gone after other gods and they were practicing some forms of Yahweh worship, but at the center and heart, there was no true worship. Something was missing. How thankful I am when I come across a church community like 26 West, who's led by a pastor and elders and staff and full of people in the congregation, in the community that say, we are about Jesus. We have made Jesus Lord. Stick with a community like this. You know, right now in this moment that we're in, um, recent statistics during this whole COVID pandemic thing has shown that the church has taken quite a hit. The Barna Research Group actually tells us that one in three people will not return back to church. And there's, you know, different reasons that people aren't in the building, some for their own health. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that used to participate in the church have decided that, you know, I like it at home with, in my jammies more. I mean, we all know if we've been doing online church that our online numbers have dropped dramatically. At the first couple of months of COVID, we were all saying, wow, we're reaching more people than ever. But as COVID went on, we recognized that the numbers were dropping greatly. And then we opened our doors back up and we thought everyone was going to come back. So glad to be together. I understand some people for health reasons didn't come back, but there are plenty of other people. It's not that. It's just they don't any longer see the value and gathering in person when they can watch it on the screen at home or they don't even watch it at all because the numbers show that people aren't participating either in person or at home. One in three. But, but I have a, a feeling about the church. I believe deeply in the people of God as the greatest anchor for the storms of life and culture. There isn't a better thing going on in the world than the church. With all her flaws, with all her missteps, the church is still the most beautiful expression of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to stick with the people of God. Because when the Bible talks about your relationship with Jesus, it uses the analogy of an entire body in which Jesus is the head of that body. And you don't get Jesus without his church. It'd be like you saying, Brian, I think you're a great guy, but I hate your wife and kids, I would say, you don't get me without them. We come as a deal. And first of all, I'm very disrespected that you would say that about my family. It's like saying to Jesus, Jesus, we love you, but we don't like your church. We think she's irrelevant. We think it's kind of purposeless. I'd rather stay home in my jammies. And I would say to you, one way that we are going to be prepared to meet God when he returns is doing the life that we have living the life we live until Jesus returns with the people of God. Amen? I'm preaching the choir. Y'all are here this morning. Good on you. Stay here. Stay here. Unless Jose gets crazy, you know, then, hey. 
But I don't think that's going to happen. Number two, how to be prepared to meet God. Turn away from all known sin. In Israel's day, during this time of Amos, the people were pretending to be faithful to Yahweh. They were acting as Jesus or Yahweh, excuse me, was their true husband while having other lovers on the side. They oppressed the poor, they crushed the needy, they committed gross idolatry and living with opulent wealth and luxury. You know, you, you can't have two lords. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no man can serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other, or you're going to hate one and love the other. You don't have space in your heart to embrace two lovers. You can't have two husbands. You can't have two lords. God has made you in such a way that there's only room for one Lord, and I suggest that it be Jesus as Lord. But you cannot participate in other practices, having another lover on the side, and also say out of the other side of your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That just doesn't work. You can't serve two masters. So we have to examine our hearts and ask God to search us and see if there are any gods, any other affections that we're chasing after. And if so, and if you are a bold enough person to be able to admit to yourself, hey, listen, I say Jesus is Lord, but I have other lovers. There's other affections in my heart. I spend more time and treasure and talent on those things than I do following hard after Jesus. The great thing about Jesus is that he accepts confessions. How many know that? He'll accept a confession. Actually, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will take you back, but not if you're trying to sneak another lover on the side. Listen, he already knows what you're doing. You, you can't cheat on God and have him not know it. He's the all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present one. Best thing we could do today is come clean and renounce all sin. Confess, God, I have other lovers. Confess it to God, but I also suggest you don't keep it there. But you do what James 5 says, that we confess our fault one to another. We pray for each other that we may be healed We've got to be a confessing people, not only confessing Jesus as Lord, but confessing when we have not made Jesus Lord, that we both confess and renounce all sin. That's how we prepare to meet God. Amen? Amen? You can't say amen? Maybe say ouch. Thirdly, we prepare to meet God by staying current with Jesus. How has Jesus been trying to speak to you and get your attention? You know, five times we read, God said, I sent a plague, I sent famine, I sent war, but you would not return to me, says the Lord. As far as it went with Israel, he kept pursuing them, he kept trying to discipline them, he kept trying to get their attention, but they would not return, they weren't listening, they weren't getting the idea. You know, it's so easy to sort of explain away things naturally. And I'm sure they could have said, oh, those are just natural things that happen. But God's actually saying, well, no, that's just not a famine. That's just not a global pandemic. That's just not wildfires breaking out. That's just not a city on fire. That's just not a time of racial reckoning and political bifurcation and polarization. This is me trying to speak to you. Now, I think God's been trying to say something to us in the last little bit. 
but sometimes we don't see or listen. It's the danger of the modern Western mind post-enlightenment. Because in our secularist, rationalist way of thinking, we believe that everything can be explained logically and scientifically when sometimes it's God calling out to us through all these things and saying, don't just explain this away. I'm trying to get your attention, my people. You could read chapter 4 and go, I could see how that could happen naturally. Oh, wars happen, famines happen, this happens, that happens. Or you could say, I wonder if God is trying to speak to his people. And I wonder what he's trying to say. And the only way I know how to hear what God is trying to say to me in times like this is that I have to stop the commotion and I have to become still. And I have to give God space in my life. And ask God, are you trying to speak to me? As I slow down and I make space to listen. You know, consider what God might be up to in your life. Because I promise you this, He's never idle. How many, how many of you know that? The, the Most High never sleeps or slumbers. He's doing something in each of our lives. And the only way I'm probably going to calibrate my own heart to know what God is up to in my life is I, I would quiet myself and give Him the space to speak to me. And then finally... How do we prepare ourselves to meet the Lord? Number four, and finally, draw near to God. You might be here this morning and you might feel far from God. And I won't ask you to raise your hand. But you just might not feel God's nearness. And we don't always feel God's nearness. And there's various reasons for that. But the Bible says very plainly in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God. Finish the sentence with me. And he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If you feel far from God, this is a time to draw near. That's why coming together in public worship with brothers and sisters to sing songs of praise to God, to take the bread and the cup, to commune with each other, to pray for each other is a way in which we say, God, I feel far, I'm drawing near to you. And God says, I promise you, you do that and I will come near to you. You know, and some people say, well, Brian, I tried that and it doesn't work. Well, I'm saying the Bible says it does. So who am I going to go with? You or what God says? God promised, draw near and so will I. And so I have to do things at certain times in my life that, that, that warm my heart, that draw me into the presence of God. How many of you here are like music people, like worship music, like that's your love language with Jesus? Some of you are like a handful of you, okay, like we need to become a singing church then. Um, but, but one of the things, man, I would just say, get that playlist, get your Hillsong on, get your Maverick City on, get that Spotify worship playlist, stick those earbuds in and go out and sing loud apart from where anyone can hear and, and, and begin to draw near to God as you sing praises to his name, as you sing, as we did this morning, till our lungs give out. God, we sing to you. God, we praise you. You're the most high God. It's not about me. It's about you and your glory. And I would suggest that you take time at the first part of your day, to open up the Bible and to read it attentively and slowly, listening for the voice of God in the Scriptures with an open journal and a pen. 
Writing down prayers of gratitude. God, what have you done that I'm thankful for? Writing down confessions. God, this is where I'm just off. I did this. I said that. I I shouldn't have done that. God, forgive me and change me. You write down your petitions. God, I need help here. God, can you show up in this space? And then something I've been practicing, which has become a very dear practice for me, is I create space for listening. And the way that looks for me is just me at home on my couch with my curried cup of coffee. I apologize for any of you coffee people. Sometimes it's just easier that way. I got my Bible and my journal, my cup of coffee on the couch, and everyone's still asleep. And I will just write out things I want to hear God on about my marriage, about my children, by name, people in my life that God's bringing up. And I'll ask specific questions. God, do you have any say, say to them about this? Or what's going on in my church? God, give me a word. And I, and I, I've experienced in my own experience that God never fails in that moment. He always has something to say to me. And I usually leave those morning moments feeling near to God. So if you're far from God, draw near to Him by practicing the things that draw your heart close. Because if you will come near, God promises that He will come and meet with you. Prepare to meet your God. I'm going to finish with this story. It's an old story about a king and his court jester. And the court jester was in the presence of his king. And the king sort of insultingly handed the court jester a stick he called the fool stick. And he said, take this stick and keep it until you find someone who's more foolish than you and give it to them. And a few months passed and King hadn't seen his jester for a while and he had fallen ill and he was on his deathbed and he called his jester in and he told him, I'm going on a journey. To which the jester asked, where are you going, king? I'm going to another country. Have you made any preparations for the journey and for living in this new country? And the king said, I have made none. And at that moment, the jester handed the king the stick, the fool stick, and says, This stick belongs to you now, for I found someone more foolish than I. For I have trifled with things temporary in this life, but you have trifled with eternity. Prepare to meet your God. The way that we prepare to meet God As Amos warned the nation of Israel, it's coming, is by making Jesus our Lord. If He's not your Lord, then it's by the saving work of the crucified Christ that you find life. But listen, for all of you who raised your hand when you said Jesus is Lord, that also means that by the crucified Christ, being in Christ, making Jesus the Lord, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, what? That Jesus is Lord. I have no other lovers. There is no other way. There is no other king. I have no other affections. That all of my affection, all my devotion is for Jesus. And to live that way is to prepare to meet the Lord, to prepare to meet your God. It is nothing but the blood of Jesus over my life. My my life died and hidden with God in Christ, as the Apostle Paul said it, that I'm ready to meet the Lord. 
Let's heed the courageous words of this prophet Amos and prepare to meet God, staying centered in community of those who follow Jesus in truth, turning away from all known sin and renouncing it over our lives and staying current with Jesus and drawing near to God as we do now. And one of the ways that we do that most profoundly is by eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talked about eating and drinking the Lord's Supper, he said, everyone who comes to eat and drink the Lord's Supper must examine themselves. And so as we come to meet with God and sing the song together, this would be a time to do business with Jesus. Before we actually take the bread and the cup to say, God, search me, know me, try my way, see if there be any wicked way in me, lead me in the everlasting way. Do I have other lovers? Have I done business with you? What's going on in my life? How have you been showing up in my life? Have you been trying to say something to me through my life? Let's do business with Jesus so that when we take the bread and the cup, we're prepared to meet with our Lord. In Jesus' name.